1160 The Quest welcomes you to Legislation Made Simple. Keeping you informed on political issues, primarily legislative issues in the Georgia General Assembly, but also some national issues that implicate the teachings of the church. Issues that are critical to restoring and protecting a culture that enables families to flourish and the kingdom of God to advance. Legislation Made Simple will also let you know how to get involved, how to get to know your state representatives and senators, and most importantly, how you can affect policy. Your hosts are Patty DeCraney and Jane Robbins. Jane is a retired lawyer, formerly with a D.C.-based organization called American Principles Project. Jane worked at the Georgia legislature and has maintained her connections there, so she's plugged in under the Gold Dome. Now let's begin Legislation Made Simple. The following program was recorded in February of 2023. Any mention of upcoming legislation is in reference to the legislative session that just ended in March. You can hear more about what happened in that legislative session by listening to the Legislation Made Simple episode titled Wrap-Up Report, which aired on April 1st, 2023. All episodes are available on the Quest Atlanta app or at thequestatlanta.com. Hello and welcome to Legislation Made Simple. My name is Patty DeCraney and my co-host is Jane Robbins. Hi, Jane. Hey, Patty. Today we're going to examine a very serious issue that the legislature will be faced with, the transgender phenomenon that is affecting so many of our children, grandchildren, and teens. Our special guest to enlighten us on this topic is Dr. Quentin Van Meter. Good afternoon, Dr. Van Meter. Afternoon. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Before we dive in, we'll begin with invoking the Holy Spirit and reading Holy Scripture. Together, let's pray. Come, Come Holy Spirit, Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you will renew the face of the earth. And today's Scripture is Genesis chapter 1. Verse 27, God created man in his image. In the divine image, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Seems pretty clear to me. (laughs) (laughs) Jane, would you go ahead and introduce the topic and our special guest? Sure. In the past few years, legislation has been introduced in the Georgia House to prohibit certain medical experimentation puberty blockers, hormone treatments, surgeries, that kind of thing, on children and teens, minors, who call themselves transgender and who want to look more like the opposite sex. Now, that bill never got a hearing because of opposition from the Republican committee chairman. We expect a new bill to be introduced this session, but we're in a little bit of a holding pattern while a similar law in Alabama works its way through a legal challenge. But in the meantime... um, we do expect that that legislation is being crafted on this issue, and we're honored to have with us Dr. Quentin Van Meter, a pediatric endocrinologist here in Atlanta, who is also president of the American College of Pediatricians. He is truly, as we'll see, uniquely an expert on this issue. He is a um, parishioner at Christ the King, and he has been very, very involved in this in this issue. So, Dr. Van Meter, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Certainly. First of all, I'm I'm now the immediate past president of the college as of the first of January. We congratulations. Yes, Thank congratulations. You. So, uh, still quite involved in in all the college does. Um, 
first let me just explain what the American College of Pediatricians is because that that's it's important. We are a group of board certified pediatricians who believe that what should be done should be best for children based on politics-free science, valid science. We're a secular organization on purpose so that we're not targeted. And all all of us really, I think, are very faith-filled individuals just by nature, but we do not align with any particular uh, faith. We welcome all uh, religious faiths, all colors of of skin. There's no discrimination or or, uh, anything that that, uh, we will not accept as membership. Uh, We just have to have people like-minded who believe that uh, what is good for children, uh, not necessarily for the convenience or political ideology of the parents is most important. So that organization uh, publishes position papers on uh, things that are current. We currently are focusing on uh, the sanctity of life as one pillar of our our, uh, thrust of interest. We are also focusing on protecting what we now call biologic integrity, which is our our term for the kids that are suffering with a, a concept that they are born in the wrong body. Mm-hmm. And the third is the right of conscience, so that we, physicians uh, should be able to practice medicine uh, within the bounds of their faith uh, and be able to express that and live that faith every day without consequence. So that is the American College of Pediatricians. Uh, it's a, a wonderful organization wonderful. that is beginning to flourish uh, as we move forward in this environment of you know politics and, and medicine. And that is not to be confused with the American Academy of Pediatricians. That's the American Academy of Pediatrics is the larger organization that's been around since the 1920s, which uh, purports to advocate for children, but is at this point in time a very large political clout uh, to the political left. Uh, What a shame. It's kind of that organization has become tainted. So, But my background is in pediatric endocrinology. I was a fellow in pediatric endocrinology, which is the study of hormones and their effects in children. Uh, at Johns Hopkins, and I was there at a time when Professor John Money was on the faculty and interacted with us on a regular basis, saw a number of our patients who had issues with uh, hormonal challenges uh, in utero and ended up having genitalia that were not exactly easy to identify as male or female, so-called disorders of sexual differentiation. And he was interested in that because he had some theories uh, on, you know, who you could uh, change people into. Cause you could essentially change a biologic male into a biologic female mm. and vice versa. And uh, this playground of f- fertile ideas for him, uh, he was a really a very perverted individual. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, it's a, a nasty name to call somebody, but indeed he was perverted in his his ideas of uh, of uh, of the world and he was profoundly against religion so mm-hmm. he interacted with us on a regular basis and we were a number of us particularly those who were devoutly religious uh, were uncomfortable with what he was trying to teach us and what he recommended for patients. So he was the pioneer of gender identity. He, he sort of said I, gender is is a term of the sort of internal sexed self. Oh boy. Uh, and so he invented that concept back in the 1950s and published in, in, in books uh, that he wrote that this idea of his, not based on a shred of any biology or our science, just his ideas, his philosophy. Oh, no. He and Harry Benjamin, who was an adult endocrinologist, uh, and Alfred Kinsey, who was a an entomologist who studied the 
the sex life of mud wasps. Uh, that was his <laughs> claim to fame. He's and not the, making this up. No, and the, the, <laughs> the three of them were colleagues in what, you know, to begin what was called the sexual revolution in the United States back in the 60s and 70s. So, The two of them. The, the three of them, Benjamin, Money, and, and Kinsey. Kinsey. So um, that's where this stemmed from. Um, experiments were done on infants um, and slightly older children to surgically change the appearance of their genitalia to that of the opposite sex based on, you know, I think this is where we should go. There was no informed consent. There was no review by institutional review boards, no, no project or scientific study. It was just, we're going to do this and see what happens. And that was, that was a danger. I have an idea. Let's do things to children and let's see what happens to them. Okay, it sounds like a little bit like Nazi concentration camp goings on in, in you know in the forties. Experimentation. So um, the outcomes were quite disastrous, and 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 one of my patients we saved from the jaws of John Money. Uh, I was oh it was at the end of my fellowship, a little baby uh, boy that came down from uh, Buffalo with his mom. Uh, who had very, 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 very tiny genitalia, and uh, money decided that the kids like that could never, ever possibly grow up to be a functional men sexually, and that they should therefore have their genitalia sort of excised, if you will, and raise them as girls. And so this little fellow comes down, and my my faculty mentor and I put together a protocol which was established and a standard of care to ev evaluate the hormonal production and tissue response in this little boy. And we sent the baby boy home to Buffalo with our program intact. Uh, we did not consult John Money because we didn't think there was any reason we wanted to have him deal Ex with his family. Right, exactly. And six weeks later, the mama comes back with grandma in tow. And a, and a little baby girl in her lap, dressed in pink with a little eyelet bonnet and a female name, first name, same last name. And we were kind of askance and we do the physical exam. And this little boy had flourished in terms with this with this hormonal stimulation that was done in a scientific fashion and was clearly going to be a very appropriately effective uh, young man and uh, adult, presumably, mm -hmm. and, and function sexually as such. So we we said, what happened? Well, John Money had found this family before they left the hospital and counseled the mother to go home and change the baby's identity as a girl, let the family know, pick a name, dress the baby as a girl, this was going to be a girl that these silly doctors just don't know what they're talking about. Oh, no. So that was child was, was rescued, but the others were not. Uh, and the very famous twins... Uh, twin boys uh, who he worked on and changed one of them ostensibly into a girl. Uh, the end of the story is that both of the twin boys in their adulthood ended up one committing suicide and the other dying of a drug overdose. Mm. So d just long story short, John Money was a perverted individual who experimented on children without parental consent. And this happened in the 50s? 1970s. 1970s. Oh, in the 70s. Yeah. So okay. Johns Hopkins, uh, the psychi psychiatry department was taken over by Dr. Paul McHugh, who happens to be a wonderfully devout Catholic individual with a, just the biggest heart on the planet. Uh, just a genius in terms of worldwide publication acceptance and, and revered highly in his field, he came in as the chairman of the Hopkins uh, Psychiatry Department and shut down John Money's entire program and said, you may not write, you may not publish under the Hopkins uh, imprimatur anymore, uh, go away. And so John Money's program was just 
put the wraps, the Hopkins kind of buried that history in the basement of their annals of embarrassment, <laughs> and on on went the uh, the rest of the eighties and nineties and two thousands until today. Right. What what is all the madness going on right now? Well, it's a rekindling of the idea that you can you're either born in the wrong body. Okay, and that that's a valid scientific concept. And who's rekindled this? Uh, it started in the Netherlands. Uh, they were a group of individuals, an adult psychologist, uh, decided that in, the, in her kindred of uh, individuals that she treated who were adult transgender. And th this was a time in the year, you know, 2000 that there were no children involved in this concept at all. It was always consenting adults. Mm -hmm. Okay. And she decided that um, she looked at, the, at her clientele and they, they were complaining how hard it was to change their physical bodies if they'd gone through puberty and you know, developed the, like their biologic sexual characteristics, you know, body hair, big jaws, big bones, big shoulders, giant feet, uh, you know, right. all the things that happen with, with uh, developing males. Um, and they said, you know, if we could just have not had those things happen, um, we could, you know, it's physically much easier to change your physical appearance if your body hasn't been changed through the natural process of going through puberty. Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and find some children. Oh, no. More let's, experimentation. Let's go ahead and see, have an idea. This this is a good idea. We'll stop this and see if they're, if they're better off because of this. And then, of course, they want to be looking like the opposite sex. So then we can in introduce the hormones of the opposite sex in physiologic levels that will produce the physical appearance of the opposite sex. So that was a two-part protocol. Now they were very careful to screen all the mental health issues out up front and they counseled the kids and you know to make sure that they were not, you know, mentally ill in terms of schizophrenia and not being able to tell what's real and not real and you know not hallucinating and making up things in their head that were clearly uh, fictitious that these people were the, the kids were, you know, seriously upset about the fact that they believed they had been born in the wrong body. That protocol, it's called the Dutch protocol now, um, went through and, and scoured the landscape for any mental health issues and said, okay, fine, you're, you're okay. Now we're going to let your parents decide, but we're not going to coerce them at all. The parent, parental consent for this moving forward is going to be you know, fully consented, uh, understanding everything that can happen, which is really not possible because they're consenting for their children who who have no capability of consenting because of their inability to do so and make up their minds and, and think clearly and look at long-term consequences. Uh, we'll go ahead and get only those kids in the study and then we'll move them through this and we'll watch what happens to their physical bodies. We'll look at, um, you know, at, at sort of certain times moving forward, two years out, five years out, eight years out, 10 years out, and see, you know, what we're seeing. In but it's an experiment. It was, again, I have an idea. Let's do this to children right. and see what happens. Now, thrown in there was this concept of parental consent that was obtained. So it was a little different than what John Money did, but not much different. Mm. So th based on that, um, th that was the, the, the reason that the United States began having clinics pop up, first in Boston. So what was the year? 
This was a year in the United United States was two thousand, and the Netherlands was two thousand. In two thousand, and in the United States, two thousand seven, Dr. Norman Spack, who had sort of admired this protocol from afar, decided he wanted to be the first person in the U.S. to open an official clinic for kids with gender identity issues, and its purpose was essentially just to go ahead and change them all, not not to evaluate them you know, emotionally, not to look into the deep, dark secrets of their their emotional self, uh, but to just pick them up, find them, and then put them in the clinic, and then just keep them there. I mean, it was not as if they said, um, and there's no transparency of how many kids came in the door, and how many kids decided this was not what they really wanted and went home, and and had no interventions, either socially, uh, medically or surgically, uh, there's no data on that. So, what? How, what, how did they find these children, and what were their ages? Um, the did ages, they have? A, did they have an approach? They had an approach, and it was down to age two or three, uh, all the two way up. Two or three, not just to, just to get them in the door. And the, but we don't know the numbers of those. Okay, no one is allowed to see the data on how how they they mention the age group, but they don't have how many three year olds, how many five year olds, or seven. Year olds and, and it's that was here just, or in the, the Netherlands. What about the Netherlands? Did they have they, they a had, protocol? They, and... they did, and they they actually it's all data that's been recorded. And I will uh, at the end of this, I, I will. There's been a, a critique of that entire protocol okay. that was just published uh, in the Journal of uh, Sex and Marital Marital Therapy. Okay, uh, and we'll link that which, to okay. our website. So, um, at any rate. Um, Norman Spack's clinic in Boston, he had colleagues in Chicago and San Francisco and Los Angeles, and all of a sudden, boom, 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 clinics began sprouting up at all the academic institutions. Oh, no. And uh, to this date, there are over 60 uh, academic institution-based transgender care clinics. And then, on top of that, we now have Planned Parenthood uh, at all of its offices offering the same services mm. uh, to adolescents. Mm. And and then there are some online communities. Plume.com, P-L-U-M-E.com is an interesting place to go look. Uh, with a just a, a single interview uh, with no, no physical exam, no uh, in-depth psychological evaluation, these kids have one visit and are, and are prescribed hormones over the internet. Because the lingo here is affirmation, right? Yes. The, if the, you affirm the child, whatever the child says, you accept so that. So th- this is the whole point of, the, of our language, okay? The first concept was the introduction of the term gender uh, to sort of gently replace the word sex. So, you know, sex is a multiplicity of meanings. It's an action. It's a biologic person. And people... You know, every time they bring up the word sex, they think, I don't want people to think that I'm talking dirty, okay? So do we have a word that we can use that doesn't, doesn't have a connotation of the physical action of sex? Well, that could be gender, okay? So gender slips into the vocabulary. John Money did that very cleverly on purpose. I mean, this is, this is, this is, get gender in there, and then you can kind of, gender identity becomes a sort of a cousin of gender, and then you can use words about affirming, which it means sounds so positive. I mean, an affirmation. Right. I mean, that's a that's a word of faith, you know. And so it sounds so gentle, but it's actually trying to convert a body from male to female or vice versa. So they call the attempts to maintain 
the, the biologic integrity of the child, as we now like to call it, by saying that we are doing conversion therapy and that it should be outlawed. And that that's a hot button, you know, that, that's, oh, no one wants to be again, you know, for conversion therapy. Doesn't that mean you put electrodes on their, their nipples and shock them and put their genitals in ice baths to keep them from, you know, unwanted feelings? And so it, they, they have very carefully on the trans advocacy side taken all the terms and the words to make their side and their con- concept very positive and flowery sure. and wonderful and full of unicorns and sunshine, right. and our side as mean, vindictive, hateful, bigoted. Right. They're phobic. changing, changing the yeah. language, yeah. and they're well, very successful in that. Yeah, way. that's a that's a, a very good propaganda tactic. Yes. But let's talk about the medical aspects of the so-called gender affirming treatment, which is puberty blockers and wrong sex hormones and that kind of thing. What what do we know about what those kinds of interventions can result in? Well, we know about the puberty blockers. And just as aside, the, the whole history of, of puberty blockers is a fascinating, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a gem of, of medical discovery. Um, we, back in when I was a fellow, we did not have a name for the connection between the base of the brain, which is called the hypothalamus, and the pituitary right below it. We knew the pituitary secretes hormones for a number of wonderful endocrine functions that are very vital, uh, but we didn't have the, the the connection. We knew there was a if something was happening, and so we called those so those pathways factors. So there was a hypothalamic factor unidentified that we knew must exist that would tell the pituitary to secrete the hormones that tell the gonads, either the testicle or the ovary, to begin producing the hormones of puberty and to do the, the work in the body. Well, they they identified uh, uh, with a person who had a tumor that was in their body that was overproducing uh, hor- something that was telling the pituitary to secrete large amounts of the, of the hormones that we knew existed that told the gonad what to do. And they took this tumor out and they identified um, a hormone, and it was gonadotropin-releasing hormone, uh, which we call GNRH. And that was the, nat- the natal hypothalamic factor that told puberty when to start and that also helped signal ovulation in women. So it's a, it's a very you know, it's integral part of how the body works. Well, being good scientists, they, they said, put their thinking caps on and said, could this be used therapeutically to override the you know the natural effect of the body by making a version of this hormone that was so incredibly powerful that it blew the circuitry it flipped the circuit and the pituitary right. said this is too much and i won't answer and so the receptors for the, that hormone would would become dysfunctional i mean and disappear what we call downregulate and it's part of endocrinology and receptors. A hormone is a, is a key and the receptor is the lock and they have to interact with each other. So this drug was developed as a therapeutic intervention for people who had cancers that were from ovarian tissue or testicular tissue okay. or prostate t- tissue. And if they could turn off the production of the hormone selectively and not ruin all of the other pituitary function, they could save the lives of these patients. And so they were really carefully studied in beautiful protocols with consent and all the things that are required. So that's, that was developed and the puberty blockers uh, were used primarily in adults. 
Uh, but then kids with precocious puberty, these are children, girls below the age of eight and boys below the age of nine who entered puberty prematurely, uh, small, small numbers, perhaps one in five to 10,000 children, um, that could we use the same drug in children and see whether or not we could interrupt puberty temporarily so that it didn't happen at age five, six, seven, eight, but that instead it happened at age 10, 11, and 12, the way mm -hmm. it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. And the reason for needing that, that interruption was because the kids, particularly in girls, might be menstruating in second grade and third grade, and that socially were not prepared, and their environment wasn't prepared for them to, to right. be menstruators, if you will. Right. And it's very scary, and the, you know the, the girls are not necessarily focused on hygiene and, and, and all of a sudden this could be a really a significant social problem for them. On top of that, it also used up all of their growth potential very early and left them profoundly short. Oh, so two indications to block puberty in the premature puberty in children with the consent of the parents, okay, because this drug exists, but to give it, it requires parental consent. Um, you go ahead, and it became FDA approved through wonderful, careful research protocols. You interrupt that for a couple of years until you can kind of pull the plug of, of that suppression and let the natural puberty come back. And they discovered in the basic studies of patients that puberty did come back, fertility did come back. There weren't genetic problems for the offspring. The mother suffered no increase in cancers. The child had no increase in medical problems. Okay. Uh, they did find when they used this in children that a, few, a number of the kids in the study protocol had some emotional explosive experiences that, and so those kids were, uh, you know, the, the parents were told that this might happen, and if it did happen and it was not tolerable, they could stop the therapy and, and make up their mind. So that that's the puberty blocker history. So those drugs have been used and studied. Now that's used as a weapon by the trans activists to say, you see, it's all reversible, because we know in a period of a couple of years in very young childhood. It, everything comes back. Empirically, they apply this drug to adolescents to block what is supposed to happen at the right time with bone maturation, with bringing in calcium into the skeleton, with uh, you know maturing body organs, particularly the brain. We know how important the hormones of puberty are, that both the, and to block the natural process of, of human puberty to, to put it off and then sort of throw in cross hormones to imitate the other side, we have absolutely no idea about the long-term effects. We do know that in kids with very, very delayed puberty, and particularly the females, they, their bone density is profoundly less and never never recovers. Mm. So we, we deal with a number of patients who have very, very delayed puberty, and we we induce puberty in those kids to prevent long-term problems with their bodies. So, but no one has studied what happens to the brain if you take puberty out of the picture. The puberty that belongs to the biology of the child, not an artificial puberty of the opposite sex. So there are no data whatsoever. It's never been done, but they're collecting data. Mm -hmm. And in Britain and Sweden and Finland and Denmark, they have discovered that there are problems. Okay, let's um, wrap this session up. We're going to have him back. That's a good bridge to the the problems, and we can talk about what has been has been going on there. And we hope that everyone will tune in next week as well to hear more from Dr. Van Meter. Thank you, Dr. Van Meter, so much. And would you would you mind closing us Certainly. with a prayer? God, we we are 
guided by the Holy Spirit in what we do, uh, things that happen in our lives that present themselves. We depend on you to guide us through our hearts as the Holy Spirit comes to us, shows us the way that is in your uh, pathway, your desires, your wonderful love of, of humankind that you created so kindly. And we ask that you continue uh, to have the Holy Spirit be around us and help us as we move forward to solve the problems and to do what is best for children. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 The preceding program was recorded in February of 2023. Any mention of upcoming legislation was in reference to the legislative session that just ended in March. You can hear more about what happened in that legislative session by listening to the Legislation Made Simple episode titled Wrap-Up Report, which aired on April 1st, 2023. All episodes are available on the Quest Atlanta app or at thequestatlanta.com. This has been Legislation Made Simple, keeping you informed on political issues with your hosts, Patty DeCraney and Jane Robbins. Listen again next week at the same time for Legislation Made Simple on AM 1160, The Quest.